0: For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're grateful to our members who make all of this possible and hope that you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members get access to our expanded offering of exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member bonus briefs, in our DSR Daily Brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening at 5 p.m. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed that you can add to your podcast app of choice. Join now for just $5 per month or $50 per year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com and select Become a Member. And don't miss our upcoming mini-series featuring interviews with some of the key players from David's upcoming book, American Resistance, The Inside Story of How the Deep State Saved the Nation. Thank you.
1: Nine, twelve, ten, twenty-eight, two, twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio. Coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the podcast. I am your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Coming to you from beautiful, colorful Vermont, autumnal Vermont. We
2: have with us David Sanger of the New York Times. Hi, David. Hey, David. I don't understand why you guys are down there when all the colors are up here. I, I just don't get it.
1: Yeah, no, David just showed us the look out of his window, and I have to say, it looks pretty darned idyllic. Coming to you from idyllic Washington, D.C., in the fancy offices of the American Enterprise Institute, <laughs> we have Dr. Corey Shockey. How are you doing, Corey?
3: Exceedingly well. Thank you, Ex- David.
1: Exceedingly well. And from Alexandria, Virginia, we have the Secretary of Institutions <laughs> of Georgetown University, Rosa Brooks. Hi, Rosa. How are you? Howdy, David. Howdy. Oh, that's that. That's that. Hard yeah, yeah. Thing. That's. I'm going
4: to say that from now on. I'm going to say howdy instead of a hello. That's where you hang out in Wyoming a lot,
1: don't you? Do you do like... Wild West stuff when you're
4: out there, rounding up dogies.
1: Yeah, rounding <laughs> rounding up dogies. I
4: have, I have a dogie. <laughs> do. A doggy, um, who will chase a dogie, but I've never rounded any up. I think I've made some run away in horror. <laughs>
2: um,
1: yeah. Uh, well, all of you are very pastoral. I really kind of admire that. Corey, of course, crushes grapes with her bare
2: feet.
3: <laughs> Neeks home to California every time she's unsupervised.
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I actually um, think we need as a fundraiser, David, to for Deep State, you know, to see if we can get Rosa to lead us on the cowboy bar tour of
4: Yes. I will do that.
2: You've been in cowboy bars?
4: Well, I have no comment.
3: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. Well let's just uh move then uh our topics there are a few big topics to discuss in the past few days if you read the newspapers they the you would draw the conclusion that there has been a major escalation in the war in Ukraine commencing perhaps with the attack on the bridge from Crimea to Kerch but then uh, followed by Uh, Russia's barrage of missiles that rained down yesterday on Ukraine, half of which were shot out of the sky, half of which hit their targets, which were largely civilian targets. And so I saw a lot of articles saying, oh, this is a big escalation and a
2: turning point in this war. Is it, David? I'm not sure it is. The first thing is, what we've learned in the past couple of days is that Putin is without a real strategy to achieve his objectives if his objective is still to take over Ukraine, because he clearly does not have the military forces for that. Otherwise, he wouldn't be calling up 300,000 untrained, largely untrained uh, recruits. You don't take over a country by doing random missile attacks on their city centers. That's an act of terror. But it's not a strategy to actually occupy the country. The ostensible reason for this was the explosion on the Kerch Bridge. It's not clear that it did much permanent damage to the bridge, but it did a lot of permanent damage to Putin's ego at a time that it's been battered about because this bridge was his pet project. He actually inaugurated it in 2018, and it's the connector between Crimea and the rest of Ukraine and a big and very quite critical uh, line of communication and transit for weapon systems for the Russians into their forces. So now the question is, is he doing this as sort of a vengeance thing for the bridge, in which case maybe after a few nights of these barrages we've had to, he'll get it out of his system. Or are we on the bottom rung of an escalation ladder that then moves up to something worse, bigger attacks, chemical, or ultimately to nuclear? And of course, that's the big fear. And it's exactly the the fear that you heard President Biden utter at, of all places, a fundraiser in New York in the apartment of James Murdoch. Raising Um,
4: money for the apocalypse. There
2: you go. (laughs) Raise the money for the apocalypse now because it never works later, right? (laughs) And the fascinating thing about his discussion was he said, we need to find an off-ramp for Putin, which, of course, after the bridge happened, led to a lot of internet memes and a lot on Twitter, where they showed the collapsed section of the bridge and said, hey, Putin, here's your off-ramp. And the national security advisor of Ukraine, knowing that, it had been Putin's 70th birthday the day before, and David didn't even send a gift, put up a picture of the bridge burning. And on the other side of the split screen was Marilyn Monroe and that famous sultry singing of happy birthday, Mr. President, that she did for Kennedy. So they were doing everything they could to provoke Putin, and they got a sort of predictable response. The question is, are we moving to a nuclear response?
1: Well, it's not the only question. It is a question, Corey. I read somewhere that the barrage of missiles launched by Putin cost $740 million. And I just am not of the impression, and I don't have the exact numbers before me, that that's something he can do every day. I've read a lot about them running out of stocks of different kinds of weapons, Um, And so, I mean, one conclusion is, well, his only option is to escalate to some tactical nuke. But, of course, that would be a disaster for him. So the the, the other question is, does he have any other options? Or is this just going to be an exercise in futility that goes on as he runs out of money?
3: So, yes, he has other options, including... Ending a war of aggression against Ukraine, but there are no exits with honor for him because he has chosen a dishonorable path. And I'm sympathetic to the president's long-standing concern about not wanting a world war. but it, it's terrible for both deterrence and non-proliferation for President Biden to keep saying that. It's right to be concerned about it. It's wrong to be talking about it that way in public, especially when it's at a partisan, private political fundraiser. But he has said it before. So Putin's problem is, as retired Australian Major General Mick Ryan keeps pointing out in his terrific tweet threads on this, Putin's problem is that he has an incredibly ambitious set of political objectives that his military lacks the power to successfully carry out. And so I do think David's right that we run increasing risks of escalation. I disagree with David that the civilian attack that Ukraine in some way precipitated the civilian attacks because Russia's military was targeting civilians before the Ukrainian government was taunting them, and they will be targeting civilians because they are losing the military capability to attain their objectives, and they're trying to break Ukrainian fighting spirit, which is why the behavior of the Ukrainian government is so easily justified, right? People are being terrorized by missile strikes on apartment buildings and playgrounds. And so fostering and sustaining the morale of Ukraine to bear that burden as their army wins the war is what the government's engaged in. So I know, David, I know you weren't blaming the Ukrainian government for this, but I just want to stomp my feet about that one because there, because there is so much anxiety about giving Putin an, an off-ramp. And too little anxiety about helping Ukrainians continue to bear the burden of invasion and assault. Um, Wait, let me, uh, David. No, nope, you can't.
2: <laughs> no, you can't. No rebuttals
3: are not. Let me. Let me what Just I was saying. Let me I, I agree with I, you.
2: <laughs> I agree with you that he was he was going after civilians before. What's different if if you listen to to Russian TV before they always said well. This is just all a special military operation. And what was happening in the past two nights was they were reveling in the attacks on civilians, which is a difference of tone in, in the way they're admitting to it, at least. And I, I was wrong in not describing that before.
3: You are, as usual, exactly right, David. And it speaks to this point about whether we have a Putin problem or a Russia problem. And one of the ways this war could end is with Putin being overthrown. But as David's reminder suggests, he's very likely to be overthrown from the xenophobic right, not from the moderate Western-oriented left. And that too suggests that we may yet have uh, escalation to Other ways of killing Ukrainian civilians, including Russia crossing the nuclear threshold. David, to your point, they are absolutely running out of precision-guided munitions and top-flight military gear, in part because the economic sanctions we have put on are preventing them from getting the kind of silicon chips that will allow them to produce more of what they need. But I am grinding my teeth at the president, worrying more about nuclear use in Ukraine than Ukrainians are worrying about it because Ukrainians have actually given us the right answer to this kind of nuclear threat, which is to square your shoulders and say, this will not change the outcome of the war. Because to say anything else encourages these kinds of threats, encourages countries to want nuclear weapons in order to successfully make these kinds of threats and also does not prepare the American public and allied publics for the response that the United States might choose to make if Russia actually does this.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at the Global Dispatches podcast. Global Dispatches is the longest-running independent world news podcasts. It's hosted by veteran international affairs journalist Mark Leon Goldberg, who conducts thoughtful interviews with policymakers, think tankers, journalists, and experts of all stripes from around the world. The Guardian called it a podcast to make you smarter. We think you might want to give it a listen. As a person who, just by virtue of the fact that you're listening here, has an interest in international affairs, this is just the kind of podcast you might well want to be listening to. Global Dispatches covers issues ranging from conflicts and crises in Africa and the Middle East to long-term trends in international relations and the latest geopolitical intrigues at the UN and beyond. If you like deep state radio, you really need to give a listen to Global Dispatches. You can find Global Dispatches, World News That Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So, Rosa, as you know, Corey is a tough minded person on, on the right of the center, whereas I'm a flimsy left wing liberal. And yet, I find Corey's position on this thing very compelling. And I would go further which is when I heard that the president said that you know Armageddon was the only possible result of the use of a tactical nuke, I thought that was not super constructive. A, because while that's a possibility, it's unlikely they're going to use a tactical nuke. It's unlikely that will deter them. And it's almost certainly not the result of them using a tactical yeah. nuke since we would respond in a bunch of other ways. And I thought it made a lot of people who are sitting there in their homes in Toledo, Ohio, or wherever, real nervous. And this could undermine resolve and actually lead us to finding that off-ramp a little bit too early. So I'm wondering what you think of the U.S. rhetoric on these
4: issues. I'm gonna take a very firm stand in favor of uncertainty and bewilderment I don't know. I've been struggling with this, too. I, I absolutely understand Corey's argument. I also understand the argument to say, boy, we need to keep reminding Putin and and his inner circle and the Russian people how high the stakes are if anybody crosses that nuclear threshold. And it's really important to keep doing that. And, and you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing for them to be thinking in terms of Armageddon because we really don't want them to do it. And I, I can see the arguments for both. And the, the problem is, That I certainly, and frankly, you know, I don't think anybody really understands how Putin's mind is working at this point. I think there are, you know, one possibility is that he's got nothing left to lose. He has no exit strategy. You know, he has no, "Oh, oh, well, maybe I'll step down and just go retire, you know, peacefully in a Caribbean island, surfing the waves and having a few margaritas. You know, that's not really an option for him. He either prevails or he's pretty much dead or or functionally speaking, he's basically dead. So one, one danger is that he feels like he has nothing to lose. Why not take as many people down with him and as many Ukrainians at least down with him, you know, and potentially provoke a much broader crisis that sucks NATO countries into the war more directly. That's a possibility. I think it's also a possibility that although he clearly has is further gone than any of us imagined he was, you know, a year ago, that he's not totally bonkers um that he's he likes to make noises about nuclear weapons and this is not a this is not a bluff and you will you'll be sorry you will rue the day if you said mean things about me and so forth but that he knows perfectly well that it would be it would be insane it would be unbelievably foolish and suicidal from a power perspective to to actually cross that nuclear threshold that india abandons him china abandons him the entire world turns against him even if we don't get anywhere close to Armageddon, really bad things happen to him. And, and that may be enough of a of a deterrent. I, I don't know. I do think I don't know. And I don't know if it's knowable. And that's the problem because the stakes are very high. You know, if we get this wrong either way, the stakes are high. But I don't know that we actually at the moment have a very good way of knowing which is which is likely to occur. I, I did want to go back to Corey's point about the possibilities that Putin is replaced by. People who are just as bad or even worse. I think that's a real possibility. We talked about this a little bit last week with Steve Sustanovich. Clearly, these latest round of strikes against civilian infrastructure and civilians were designed to appease the, you know, hardline nationalist factions who've been saying the problem with the war in Ukraine is not that is not that it was really a foolish idea and we should end it. The problem is that we're just not being mean enough to the Ukrainians. We just got to kill some more of them. And, we got to completely obliterate that country. And, and that's who he's now playing to. And empowering that group doesn't make me feel super optimistic about the future of Russia.
1: Yeah. Now it's hard to be super optimistic about the future of Russia. David, an- another element of this whole thing, obviously, came as uh, OPEC decided that they were going to restrict production of petroleum products. And that was something that many people saw as both a direct kind of support for Russia and a direct sort of thumb in the eye to the Biden administration at election time. And uh, they didn't have to do it now, even if they were doing it for their economic reasons, they could have postponed it. The timing of it was conscious. And The result has been a lot of anger across the board, certainly from Democrats in Washington, including the chairman of the Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee, Menendez, today saying, you know, he wanted to come up with a way to punish Saudi Arabia for, you know, undermining our efforts in Ukraine. How do you read the act and how significant do you think it is or do you think it's just you know, a hiccup that is you know, involved with dealing with a complex global issue like this?
2: I think it's more than a hiccup. The optics were terrible. How much difference it's going to make in the oil markets, we haven't figured out. But we saw the difference it made in the political markets. So for those deep state listeners who forgot our episodes from the summer or took the summer off, the president, with great reluctance, went to Saudi Arabia this summer went to Israel and then Saudi Arabia. His trip in Saudi Arabia was pretty fraught because you'll remember during the campaign he had referred to Saudi Arabia as a pariah state. He met Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince. There was the famous photo of the fist bump, and we debated on on Deep State whether or not this looked overly familiar. And while there was no oil or gas agreement at the time, there was an understanding as we all left Saudi Arabia that we were briefed on that the Saudis would work to increase their capacity at the end of the summer, and they did briefly, and help bring down gas prices. Now, of course, gas prices went down some by themselves without Saudi action, uh, in part because China's in slowdown, but other factors as well as the supply chain eased up a little bit. And then the Saudis turn around and end up leading this group within OPEC plus, which included Russia, in which they agreed to reduce production, the exact opposite of what they had told Biden that they were going to go do. Who would ever have thought that they would be unreliable? It's astounding. And they did it. Gambling going on in this establishment. Right not only gambling, but guess who was in the establishment, Corey? The deputy prime minister of Russia. They're a member of OPEC plus who was sitting at the meeting in Vienna for good appearance's sake. He didn't show up at the press conference thereafter. He's somebody who's on the U.S. sanctions list, right? Directly on the list. The Saudis are sitting down dealing with him Doing a uh, production cut that they knew would raise the overall price per barrel and therefore make it easier for the Russians to finance the war and increase their own profits. So, what did we get out of this? A fist bump and embarrassment for uh, President Biden, who maintained he got other things out of the meeting, including um, work on peace in Yemen. But what he didn't get in the end was his main objective. And then the Saudis come out and do what they did. And this morning, John Kirby, the spokesman for um, the National Security Council, told CNN that the president was now uh, about to go reevaluate his relationship with Saudi Arabia. Well, his decision to go to Saudi Arabia this summer was a result of a reevaluation. The only reevaluation I could imagine is going back to his pre-summer approach to the Saudis. Which makes you wonder why he did this to begin with?
1: May make him wonder why he did it to begin with. I think he expected he expected a different outcome, and uh, he and he did not expect. He certainly did, and the
2: headlines looked pretty bad on on Thursday when you know well, everybody, but, myself included, was writing news analyses that said he lost on this three different ways.
1: Right. Well, because the Saudis didn't have to do it. You know, they. You know, they. They. they, And if they had
3: to do it, they could have waited until after the midterm.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And they. They chose to stick a thumb in his eye. And I want to know what you think we should do about that, Corey. But first, we're going to take a quick break. Say goodbye to the folks who join us from the public for free, who are not members, and encourage them to become members. We have so much cool new stuff coming up, expanded. Coverage of the election. And then we get into 2024. Who knows what's going on around the world? Being a member gives you access to a lot more coverage. So, you know, it's $5 a month. It helps us, you know, be a mensch, become a member. And uh, if you are, you'll get to listen to the whole podcast. Uh, for now, bye bye. Except if you're a member, hang on. We'll be right back.